turn there to Ephesians 5. And I'm going to teach until Jerry walks in, and then we're going to hand it over to him for about 12 to 15 minutes. Reuben will lead in prayer for Jerry at the close, and we will all agree in prayer for, for Jerry Swamseedy. And then I'll go back to teaching, and I hopefully will get from, um, we're going to start reading verse 18, but I'll be teaching from verses 21 through 33, Lord willing. So two weeks ago, I taught on from verses, um, I don't know where it was, I think from verse 15 through 21, and I spoke quite a bit about from verses 18 to 21 that we are to be filled with the Spirit, and so I'm going to reread that, and then we're going to stay on 21 for a little bit. Verse 18, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Remember we talked about how our, our whole verbiage needs to be filled with words of the kingdom of God, words of affirmation, encouragement, inspiration giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> so submitting to one another is one of the ways that we prove that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's one of the keys to staying filled with the Spirit. Sorry, don't know why my throat's <clears throat> not doing too well. Okay, so let me say that again. Submitting to one another is one of the ways that we prove we're filled with the Spirit and one of the keys to staying filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> that does not mean that we become doormats. We are becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ who was submitted, subjected to his Father in every area. In Paul's day, <clears throat> women, children, and slaves were to be subject to the head of the family. Slaves would submit until they were freed. Boys were submitted until they grew up. And women and girls were to submit their whole lives from their father, under their father in his house. Once they got married, they moved into their husband's house and they submitted to their husband. But in verse 21, it says, we are to submit to one another by choice. So this is where Paul is now deviating from what the Romans required and what the Roman culture was. He was saying, okay, you all know you're to submit men, women, children, you know, slaves, how all that picture looks in our culture. But in the culture of the kingdom of God, we all submit to one another. And that is by choice. Mutual submission will preserve order and harmony in the family, and it will increase love and respect in the body of Christ. So let's read on. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's verse 22, 23. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, today's teaching is primarily about marriage, and not all of you are married now. Many of you have been, and better not now. 
But there is a whole lot of truth that's wrapped up into all of our lives as the people of God. So don't sit there and tune out because you think this isn't for you. The Lord wants to communicate a number of things to us today. So I hope that we can all stay together here. Okay, so in marriage, both husband and wife are to submit. We saw that in verse 21 where it says, submit to one another. For the wife, this means willingly following her husband's leadership as he yields to the Lord. Spiritual leadership includes dying to self. It's just as Jesus served the disciples in so many ways, dying to self and laying down his life for their sake. We see it beautifully when he washed his disciples' feet, lowering himself to the place of a slave or a servant in that scenario. So just as he died to self to serve, so the husbands are to die to self to serve their wives. They are to responsibly lead in the same spirit of self-giving and devotion that Jesus has shown to his church. So if you have sons and sons-in-law, you get to share this with you. That will make you a popular mother-in-law. So a godly husband will not take advantage of his role as leader, and a wise and godly wife will not try to undermine her husband's headship. The husband is to put aside his own interests in order to care for the wife. Hope you guys are listening. Reuben, listen. He's to love her, (laughs) sacrifice for her, listen to her concerns, and take care of her. He's to be as sensitive to her needs as he is to his own. How many of you know how we are very sensitive to our own needs? But the husband's to be as sensitive to his wife's needs as she is to her own. Now, women are not made second to men in general, but the wife is specifically called to respect her husband, acknowledge him as head of the family. Women, you listening? Listen to him, praise him, be unified in purpose with him, and be a helper to him. Why did Paul tell wives to submit and husbands to love? Well, in his day, the Romans customarily gave unlimited power to the head of the family. So the men were not accustomed to treating their wives with love and respect. They just lorded everything over their wives. And so the women not feeling loved didn't trust their husband's leadership, and they found it difficult to submit to. And today, many women still find it difficult to submit to their husbands, and many men still find it difficult to lovingly and sacrificially serve their wives. And so, of course, both husbands and wives are to submit to one another. Both husbands and wives are to love one another. But Paul was speaking to the areas of temptation that were the strongest. Men were tempted not to really love and serve their wives. And women were tempted not to submit to their husbands. They liked to rise up in control because if they didn't feel loved, then they felt they had to take charge. And so he's saying, women, you need to submit. And men, you need to love. Let's start in verse 25 and read on. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does his church. Let's stop there. So Paul devoted twice as many words to tell husbands to love their wives as he did to tell wives to submit to their husbands. Isn't that good? I love that. How should a man love his wife? Here are three ways. He should be willing to sacrifice everything for her. That's really what this word is saying. Sacrifice everything for her. Number two, he should make her well-being of primary importance. And number three, he should care for her as he cares for his own body. And no wife needs to fear submitting to a man who treats her in this way. Men, if you will treat your wives in this way, your wives will submit to you. You will win their love and their respect. So in verse 26, it says that Christ's death cleanses us from our old ways of sin and sets us apart for himself. We're washed by the word of God, it says. Um, I'm going to read part of that. Jesus sanctifies and cleanses the church with the washing of water by the word. So we are washed by the word of God, which means we need to hear it from the pulpit, from podiums, such as an ABF, CGs, church, life. We want to hear the word, but if we only hear the word, we will only receive 6% of what we hear. We will lose 94% of it. So we read the word personally, ourselves. It's not just read to us. We read the word, but we will only remember 10% of what we read. So we want to do more than just read. We want to study the word. If we study it, we look at cross-references, we look at concordances, and by the way, there's a Bible concordance over here, there's a large print New Testament, and there's a new Bible over here. We were given a lot of Bibles in the church, and I've picked up at least 10. If you want a new Bible for yourself or someone else, you can speak to me. You can pick up those over there, and while I'm at it, we still have devotionals and magazines over there you can pick up. Yeah. In Israel, it would be an alarm, and we would all run for our bomb shelters. So it's a lot nicer just to turn off a phone over here. Okay, so we, beside, we, if we study the Word, we'll remember 20% of what we study. If we meditate on it and memorize it, we'll remember 50%. So, of course, the more you can get into the Word of God and get it into you, your heart, your mind, your spirit, the more it's going to impact your life. I was talking to one of our young adults this week, and she said, you know, I've never heard anyone teach or preach on meditating on the Word. I didn't know we were supposed to do that. She's in, uh, we're teaching, uh, Reuben and I and a few others are involved in a young adult, senior adult discipleship, um, I don't want to call it a course, but we are teaching every week some discipleship material with some young adult, with some young adults, 40 of them, and with some senior adults, 20 of them. And we want to keep multiplying this out. So we're doing this now until May, and then we're going to start again in June. And you can be praying about getting involved with that if you'd like. Anyway, one of these young adults, in, in the homework, it had said, meditate on Psalm 30 and write down what the Lord says to you about it. She said to me, I read that, and I thought, how do you meditate? 
never been taught how to meditate on the word. She's grown up in church, but that was a foreign word to her. So we talked about it for a while. And that made me think, that made me remember, I didn't know how to meditate on the word until I was about 35. And I grew up in the church, but I never heard anyone teach on it either that I remembered. So I want to just tell you what I'm doing right now as far as meditating on the word. I read the word, I study the word, and I meditate on it, and I'm memorizing. I hope you're doing all those too, because we're all family. We all do the same things, right? Now, meditating, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm reading through the Psalms, and I take one Psalm a day. I also read Old and New Testament. That's my study and reading. But what I'm, memor what I'm meditating on, I'll take one Psalm, and I will read it through one time, carefully, slowly, looking for truth I haven't seen before, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to me. I'm soaking in it. Then I read through it another time, and I'm praying through it. I pray through it for the persecuted church, for my life, for our church, for people in general, people specifically, as the Lord leads me. I pray through it as I read it again. Then I read through it a third time. I ponder it. I'm saying, Lord, what are you saying to me? What is obedience for me in this psalm? What are you telling me to do that I can obey? And I'm getting it firmly into my spirit as I meditate on it, pondering it. I'm, I'm marinating in the word of God. And it is being soaked into my spirit as I spend time with it like that. Then I take a different version of the Bible. I usually read New King James. Someone recently gave us a Passion Translation, so I take the Passion Translation, and I read the same psalm in that translation. Sometimes instead I'll take the Amplified Bible and I'll read the same psalm in that. And I meditate on that, and I see it differently in the other different translations. It puts a different light and a different emphasis on some of the, ver on some, some of the verses. So that's what I'm doing in meditating on the Word. If you're not meditating right now, I invite you to do something similar, to just get the Word more deeply in. You know, if you're just reading, you can pick off the top of what you see, you know, the gems on top of the ground. If you dig down, you can find the treasures. But if you go even deeper, the treasures find you. It becomes a relationship with the Word that's a lot more rich than what it has been. So anyway, I, I just remind you that in Joshua 1, verse 8, when God was speaking to Joshua, he said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may prosper in your way and be successful in what you do. He didn't say you need to read it day and night. You need to meditate in it day and night. And I, I want to look, look at one more verse with that. If you'll go to Psalm 1. Because this is all part of becoming the glorious church without spot or wrinkle that Jesus is making us into as his bride. So this fits into what we're talking about. It says, um, as you're turning, Ephesians 5.27 says, He wants to present the church to himself glorious without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but to be holy without blemish. So in Psalm 1, 1 through 3, it says, Blessed is the man or the woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates. Day and night. He doesn't just read it. He doesn't just study it. 
He meditates in it. And then he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So if we will meditate in the word of the Lord day and night, let it become our food and our drink, it will begin to change the way we think. It will renew our minds and our lives will line up with the word. We will be uh, taking, putting off the old man, as we read about in Ephesians 4, putting on the new man. We will learn to do what verse 1 says. We will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. We will walk in the counsel of the righteous. We will not stand in the paths of, of sinners. We will stand in the path and interact with people that are walking in holiness, purity. And we will not sit in the seat of the scornful. We will trust and believe in the word of God. We will not be skeptics. We will walk tall in faith. We won't yield to unbelief. So we need to be meditating in the word so that we can do that, so that we can not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. Okay, so go, let's go back to Ephesians 5. So verse 27, he's presenting us as a glorious church. And um, that is God's desire for us, that we collectively and individually would carry his glory, that we be holy without any spot of sin, without any wrinkle of selfishness or pride. So that means we're, we're continually putting off the old in repentance and putting on the new in righteousness. Now hold your place there and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in 7, says, If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, he's referring to the Ten Commandments, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Remember, Moses had spent 40 days and nights in the glory of God, and he carried that glory down with him, down the mountain, and they couldn't even look on his face because of the glory that was on him. And so Paul is saying that glory was passing away. Then in verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, that's the law, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being changed or transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We do not grow discouraged. What ministry is he talking about as we've received mercy? The ministry is the ministry of glory and righteousness. It's carrying God's glory and dispensing it to others. Look at verse 6 and 7. 
It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So we carry around in our bodies these earthen vessels, these clay pots, the treasure of the glory of God. And that way the excellence, the preeminence of the glory that we walk in is clearly of God and not of us. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord, says the Lord of hosts. John the Baptist said in John 3, 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. So that's what we're doing. We're putting off the old and we're carrying the glory of God. We're walking in the righteousness of Jesus. And He is increasing in our lives. We are decreasing and we are becoming that glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We're walking in holiness, blameless before the Lord. That is our destiny. That's what we're working toward. That's what we're praying toward. So why is it important to talk about that when we talk about the roles of husbands and wives? Because we are to carry God's glory into our marriages. We're to dispense his glory to one another as we walk in mercy and righteousness with each other. We don't just carry his glory into the world, which we do because we're salt and we're light to the world. So we carry his glory into the world. But we also carry it in our homes, in our families, in our friend groups. We are always dispensing the glory of God. That is the ministry that we have. So let's go back to Ephesians 5.30. says, We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For this reason. So what is Paul referring to? The truth that we are members of Jesus, we're part of his body. So because we are one with Jesus... We are one with one another, and this goes beyond our oneness in marriage. We are, also, we are all one with one another. We've cut covenant with the Lord God through the blood of Jesus. That automatically implies a covenant loyalty that we have within the body. That's why we don't offend one another. We don't betray one another. We walk in love and righteousness with each other. We are part of the same body of Christ. There's no competition. You don't see the word competition in Scripture. We don't compete and compare regarding our gifts, our talents, or what God's called us to do. We're all faithful exactly where He has put us so that we can function together as the body of Christ. And because of that example of Jesus in the church and us within the church, a man will leave his parents and his former life of being under their roof and he will be joined to his wife and become one with her. Just like we left our former lives and we were joined with Jesus at salvation. Isaiah 26, 13 says, Other masters did rule us, but by you only we make mention of your name. We have been under the lordship of other masters when we were in bondage to this world and in bondage to this enemy. But now we make mention of the name of Jesus only, and he is our master. 
keep looking at the time because I, as soon as they finish worshiping, Jerry's going to come on in here. I want to find a good place to stop. Okay, so let's look again at the phrase in verse 31 of Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The word leave connotates a priority change for the man. He leaves his parents and he's joined passionately and permanently to his wife. They become one flesh, which implies sexual union, child conception, spiritual and emotional intimacy, and showing one another respect as they did for their parents. So the union of husband and wife merges two people in such a way that what affects one will affect the other. And you can think back in your own marriages, those of you that have been married or are still married, that when you had a hard day or have a hard day, often your spouse will too. Sometimes when Reuben is getting anxious about something, <clears throat> I feel that anxiety too, although it's not my issue. But we are one with one another, and so we affect one another, and that's how it is in marriage. Sometimes how it is in roommates, right? You affect one another. Oneness in marriage does not mean that you lose your personality to the other person. You are still called of God as an individual, and you are still to fulfill his destiny on your life as an individual. And then God also has a destiny for couples. So you want to fulfill your destiny as a couple if you are married. It does mean caring for your spouse as you care for yourself, learning to anticipate their needs, helping the other person become all he or she can be. All right, let's look at Ephesians 5, 32 and 33. And before, before we look at that, I want to mention, um, we're not going to read it, but it's in Genesis chapter 2, I think. Yeah, Genesis 2, 19 and 20 says that after God told Adam to name all the animals and they all came before him and he named them, then God said he did not see a helper comparable for Adam. And in the old King James, it says he did not see a helpmeet. For Adam, And so that's when he decided to <clears throat> bring Eve out of Adam. And uh, that term, help me, we like to talk about that in the way that the help me, the helper, the wife, helps the man meet his destiny. She helps him meet his destiny. She is a helper comparable to him. And in marriage, we both do that. Both the husband and the wife help the other person meet their destiny. So they don't compete. They don't try to lord anything over each other. They submit to one another. They love one another. And they help each other meet the destiny that God has on their life. And that's part of our wisdom within a covenant relationship is to be seeking the Lord, praying for that person, interceding for that person so that they can meet their destiny. Years ago, when we were in Jerusalem, there was a very prophetic friend of ours. He was very sharp in prophecy. And he would give specific prophecies to people. He would just, he often worked in the area of personal prophecy. He didn't, I didn't ever see him stand up and give an outward prophecy in church. But he would take someone aside and say, man, I've got a word from God for you. And he'd give him a prophecy. 
<clears throat> so one day he called me. He said, I have a word from God for you. And I said, yeah, I, I want to hear it. So he said, okay, can I come over? And I had a friend with me. Reuven wasn't home. But he came over and he, he said, I've been praying for you. And this is what the Lord's showing me. And he said quite a bit. And I taped part of it. I took notes on part of it. it he was with us for a couple of hours. But one thing he said was, God has called your husband to speak in some arenas that he will not be able to get into if you, as his helpmate, does not open the door through prayer and intercession. Your job is to go before him in prayer and throw those doors open as you intercede for him and pray for open doors of ministry, and then he will be able to walk through them and do what God's called him to do. And that is often the role of husband and wife. You pray for one another to so that each other can enter their destiny. And even Paul wrote at the end of, I think it's Philippians, where he said, pray also for me. Now, I think it's the end of, um, it's actually the end of Ephesians. Pray also for me that God will open for me a door of opportunity. That is a common prayer we can pray for each other in the body of Christ. Lord, open doors of opportunity for all of us to be able to share the gospel, make disciples, and to speak the word as you, as you open those doors and direct our paths. See, anyway, that's, that's just part of being a, a helper comparable. Verse 32 says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the mystery of one flesh in marriage is likened to the mystery of our leaving our old nature, our old attachments, our old priorities, and being yoked to a new master. By doing that, his nature and priorities are to become ours, and we become one with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And verse 20 says, You are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we are joined with him, we are one spirit with him, we are one with one another, and we are one within our marriages. So we do everything we can to build the unity of the body, the unity of the family, the unity of the marriage the unity of the church, the unity of the entire overall church of Jesus. So we work between denominations. We encourage one another. We help each other because we want to build. You know, in Western culture, the words that describe us as individualistic Americans are words like independence, self-sufficiency. Um, what are some others? Can't even think of any others. Autonomy, that's good. We we are our own man. We try to we we are very do what we think is best when we think it's best to do it. We're very de self dependent. But words that should describe us in the kingdom of God are words like harmony, love, relationship, trust, cooperation. We work together. Like I said before, we don't compete. We don't compare. We build one another up. We build the church up. If the devil cannot break us down through outside persecution, then he comes inside the church with inside persecution of criticism, 
judgmentalism, questioning each other's motives and judgments and decisions. He divides us from within, and that disintegrates the body of Christ. That's why the, the outside church, I mean the church that is persecuted from the outside, like Iran, Iran is the fastest growing church right now with the greatest revival, and yet they're under terrific persecution. Same thing in China, very fast growing church, but under terrific persecution. We should be fast growing without persecution, right? We don't need to wait until we're persecuted. Let's be fervent now. Let's press in now. Do what God's called us to do. Okay, so Paul ends. I wonder if uh, Jerry forgot to come. Reuben, I wonder if you should just go look for him. He, would, he usually sits kind of, you know, where he sits after he leads worship. Mm, if you're facing the stage on the right side and kind of in the, near the baptistry sort of, thanks. He was so excited to do this that, that we as a whole group were going to pray for him and pray him out. I even said he can bring his whole family. I don't know if you've even all met his family. But anyway, so we'll see if we can get him in here. So I'm going to wrap up here. <clears throat> Verse 33 says, I'm going to read this again. Let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself. So in spite, you know, it's, there's the overall love of the body. We all need to love each other. But in particular, wives, you're to have husbands that love you as they love themselves. You know what that means? When they want to watch sports or a thriller on TV and they turn to you and say, would you like to watch a Hallmark movie? Just saying. And let, the, <laughs> and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So all this that he has said, he wraps it up again at the end. And he said, the most important thing, guys, love your wife as you love yourself. Most important thing, ladies, is that you respect your husband. You honor your husband. And that's not just when you are with him the way you treat him. It's when you talk about him when you're not with him. It's how you talk on the phone to your best friends about your husband. It's how you talk to your children and your grandchildren about your husband. It's even after he dies that you honor him in the way you talk about him. We still honor our parents, even though they're in heaven. We honor them by the way we talk about them. We can, there's a culture of honor that should pervade us across the body of Christ, but especially in our families. That we honor each other, respect each other, love each other, lay down our lives for each other. Paul talks about the, the significant relationships to them in their day, most of which are still significant today. He first addresses husbands and wives because that's the head of the home and the family relationship is the strength of any nation. So he speaks to family relationships. Is it no wonder that family and marriage relationships are under attack now? And with the, the whole so many things coming out, homosexual marriage, the transgender movement, all of that goes directly against the way God created us to be men and women distinctly and to have marriage between one man and one woman. I read recently about three men that all got married and then they adopted two children. 
And it was, they made it lawful in that area. As soon as they set more and more precedents, more and more of that thing can happen. We need to stand for marriage as is put in the scripture, man and woman. So anyway, he's talking about these significant relationships, first men and women, husband and wives. Then he talks about children, honoring your parents. That goes into the next chapter. He says in in verse 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. So he's dealing with fathers again there. And then he goes into a section about servants or slaves being obedient to their masters. And he does all that until he gets into verse 10 of chapter 6. And he says, finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why does he do that? Because we cannot be strong in the Lord and in his power if we are out of order in our relationships. So I'm going to say that again. We cannot be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might if we are out of order in our relationships. So he spends the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, talking about relationships, and then he says, finally, finally, after all that, after you have all your relationships in order, then put on the whole armor of God because you are in a warfare. And we can't war successfully against the enemy if we are not walking and maintaining love and integrity and righteousness in our relationships. We just can't do it. We have no strength to war against the enemy if we are out of order in our relationships. Sounds like a heavy message, but it's a freeing message, right? Now we all know what to do. You know, it's terrible when we don't know what to do. Guys, you all get to love your wives. Men? Yes, sir. Hmm. Well, thanks. That's an idea. <laughs> yeah, mutual mutual submission, huh? He said it was a good example that I asked Reuben to go get Jerry, and that Reuben willingly went to go get Jerry, although he doesn't know where he is. <laughs> He's going to find him and drag him in here. I just see Reuben coming through the kitchen. That's a good sign. Okay, well, may the Lord bless the reading and the teaching and the receiving of his word. You know, you never want to just read it or study it or even memorize it or meditate on it. You always want it to become a part of you that you're living. We don't want to have a Western mindset of we want to learn because we just want to learn. We want to know because we love knowledge. We don't want that. We want a Hebraic mindset that says, Lord, teach me so I know what to do. How do I obey you? Jerry's not coming in? Okay. Hey, yes, sir. One of my favorite Bible verses, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Living Bible says, We can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of God moves within us, we'll become more and more like Him. So He's called us to reflect His glory. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ronnie. Wouldn't it be fun just to have house churches and everyone comes and shares, you know, Rick and Ronnie, we all just share. Yeah, we're going to do that. 
Okay, then let's pray together. Reuben was prepared to pray over Jerry. And so here's the situation. He's been asked to become the worship leader in a Presbyterian church in Nashville, Tennessee. And he is asked to lead the contemporary service. So it will probably be similar to how he leads here. And his whole family be going there. And he's finished at Truett now. So he's, he's trained and he's, been, he's learned a lot being here as well. He's been on part-time staff. I don't know if you've known that. He's done a lot of the interviewing. Of, and he listens to people sing and play their instruments to see if they can do that as part of the worship team. And then he'll be going there. So Reuben, I wonder if you just, how about just coming up and leading in prayer for Jerry, even though he's not here and if y'all have especially appreciated Jerry's ministry, maybe you can catch him over the next two weeks. I think his last Sunday is Good Friday, and then by Easter, he will be there. This was the scripture that I was going to read for him out of Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not over overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's pray for Jerry and his family. Lord, they're going into a whole lot of newness. New city, new home, new people, new church, new style. Uh, Lord, the very fact that they have two different types of Services, uh, one uh, traditional and one contemporary. Lord, I, I, I just sense that there will be some elements of opposition and there will be some deep waters and there will even probably be some fire. But Lord, you promised in this scripture, I'll be with you. I'll be in you, I'll be upon you, and bring you through. And we want to believe that for Jerry and his family. Lord, thank you for the tremendous blessing that they've been while they've been here. We thank you that he has been passionate after God. Lord, it, it is so easily evidenced in his worship, wholehearted abandoned in his time of loving you through song. Lord, we pray your blessing on him. Thank you that you were with him in their coming to Waco. And now, Lord, as they go to Nashville, we just pray that this season in Tennessee would be a tremendous season of growth into the likeness of Jesus in every way. And Lord, when that happens, often there's a push, there's a stretch, but that's all good. It's all good as long as we're being conformed and transformed into the image of our King. So Jesus, we, we just thank you for the Swan City family, the blessing that they've been all throughout the church. And in the name of the Lord, we bless them and send them forth 
in a glorious way that they might do the exploits of God and bring great glory and majesty to his holy name. Thank you for them, Lord. Amen. That would have been something if he would have walked in right then. No, I walked in and he was still up on the, uh, up on the uh, platform. They're, they're singing and worshiping. You want to turn it off? We have uh, two minutes. Any question in anyone's heart for the last two minutes? Two minutes.